Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl. Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Davies, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Contemplative Studies Centre in the School of Psychology, University of Melbourne. He's a long-term meditator and meditation teacher as well as a cognitive neuroscientist, researcher, and science writer. Among other things, he's done some fascinating research on people's usage of meditation apps. And he presented recently on this topic at the UQ Compassion Symposium. He's very enthusiastic about all things meditation, including compassion meditation. And so I bring you Dr. Jonathan Davies. let's just kind of get into it. I mean, can you, can you tell us a little bit about perhaps, uh, well, your, your work now, but maybe your life generally, depending on what you feel happy to do, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, what's, what's the, the story uh, for you? Yeah. So look, I've, um, I'm a scientist, you know, my, my training is primarily science, um, but I've had lots of side adventures um, like most most good lives I've kind of um, gone down some different routes over time. So I started at UQ. Uh, I did an undergraduate degree in science. Mm. So I started off in engineering, actually, but then quickly realized I couldn't keep up with the drinking. So I switched to computer right, yeah. science. <laughs> <laughs> switched to computer um, science, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where there was a lot less drinking. Okay. Um, and yeah, that really got me interested because at the time, uh, computer science and programming was all kind of taking inspiration from the brain. And so, so I was getting very interested in computers at that point. Um, and then, yeah, this was basically kind of, so just out of curiosity, I started taking some neuroscience courses and some, and some human physiology courses to try and understand, okay, well, you know, we're, we're trying to create this computer brain based on the real brain. So what do we know about the real brain? And that really just triggered a, a quite yeah you know, it, it triggered a whole new world for me basically I kind of I you know started understanding the brain and how fascinating that was and I effectively switched so I ended up kind of majoring in computer science and neuroscience and then I went on did honors in neuroscience um and then that kind of that that started taking me off down that path down neuroscience and then further in life I went off and did a master's degree in Canada in neuroscience trying to understand pain um, and molecular targets for pain. But then I realized that so much of pain and how we understand pain is subjective. And so that kind of brought me around to psychology. So, so I ended up coming back to Australia. And after many years and a few more side um, little side adventures, I ended up uh, doing a PhD in psychology at the University of Sydney, which um, was just conferred this year. So mm -hmm. I am now, uh, now a newly minted doctor. Congratulations! Thanks very not, much. Not a small, not a small task, especially after what sounds like yeah, a lot of um, interesting study. And and actually, that 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 sort of computer science, neuroscience, you know, that's that's fascinating. I mean, how how tell us more about that kind of uh, sort of the connections there, or you know, like how much does computer science think about you know the brain or even the neuroscience of it all? Well, look, I think it's come full circle now because, you know, as I was saying, the, they were trying to understand how the brain works so they could make a computer that works like the brain. But now I think with artificial intelligence, it's going the other way. They're kind of, the computers are telling us more about what our brains do. So, mm. um, and yeah, it's, it's you know, neuroscience is a very fascinating and interesting place, I guess, because, you know, it's, it's very hard, like this idea but between the brain and the mind like first of all is the mind all in the brain or is it more embodied um and you know can you can you look at a, a you know can you use neuroimaging or neuroscience techniques to see thoughts you know like and understand consciousness and there's, there's obviously a lot of very broad things we don't know right mm. so i think you know computer science is helping a little bit yeah, it, it just it became very interesting. It kind of it, it got to the point where yeah, the, the psychology, understanding the mind, kind of seemed more important in many ways than understanding the brain. But of course, mm. you know these things all feed into each other. So a lot of what I do now, you know, I work as a as a postdoctoral fellow at the Contemplative Studies Centre, as you as you know, um, at the University of Melbourne. 
Uh, and a lot of what we do is programming. So I guess those skills, you know, like the, there's this, this convergence of these different fields coming in. So the skills that we've learned in, in computer science and neuroscience, they're all, they're all helping, you know, they're all kind of helping to put, put this puzzle together. No, it's beautifully sort of integrated, even just at a very practical level. Like I, I, I really appreciate how, you know, you, you're sort of bringing them together and, and creating kind of, you know, things uh, with the integration of the two. Um, and then there's something at a at a more almost phil- philosophical level. I mean, you, you you touched on some of the big topics of of the age. You know, AI, mind body. You know, um, uh, consciousness. You know, all of those things <laughs> are, are sort of big, fascinating topics. And I, I think there is a a fascination with with neuroscience, isn't there? Just just generally, people are really curious about it and curious about you know, what we can learn and discover about the brain and, and how it works. And, and you, you know, sometimes I notice that if you put neuroscience into the title of something, it, it, it attracts more attention. I don't know. It's a, it's a sort of a sexy topic a little bit, you know, these days. I think they've done studies showing that if you're a, if you're writing an academic paper and you have neuroimaging in it, even if it's not very good neuroimaging, your studies more likely to be published. So Right. I think that's, yeah. a, that's another plus as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's it's even in the, the research world. I, I was thinking of um, a recent YouTube short that I did <laughs> and it had the word neuroscience and it seemed to attract more views than, you know, other shorts. So it, it's sort of, it's funny that it it happens at, at multiple levels. You meant mentioned the um, Centre for Contemplative Studies. In amongst all of what you just described, what, what was your journey I guess more into mindfulness or compassion and, and meditation and, and so on so I you know I, I came out of high school and I, I went straight into university and I started studying science and mm-hmm. you know that was that was all very interesting for, for the reasons I mentioned before you know since my late teens as well I was also a, a pretty devoted meditator so I was self-taught I kind of got got my hands on whatever books or resources I could find um, went to a few kind of community courses here and there, and and you, know, you really kind of develop this this strong kind of love and passion for for meditation, um, and yeah, that kind of I guess triggered in some ways kind of fed into my to my science career and you know just understanding the power of the mind and you know the power of meditation and, and similar kind of mental tools uh, for you know healing and transformation, and yeah, I guess at that point it was just kind of you know he was me meditating on one side and he was me as a scientist on the other side. And I never thought, well, you know, what are the odds of ever getting to research meditation? And never, never occurred to me that the two could ever be married. And then I heard about the, um, the Mind and Life Institute, uh, who, which is this group that a lot of you, a lot of the, your listeners probably will have heard of. So this was um, founded in the 1980s by an entrepreneur who was also a Buddhist, uh, a neuroscientist and the Dalai Lama who, was also a Buddhist, believe it or not. Um, and it, the idea was that Dalai Lama was very interested in kind of applying scientific um, technique and, and scientific principles to understanding Buddhist Buddhist practice and and that sort of thing. And then we had a you know a, a neuroscientist philosopher and an entrepreneur Buddhist, and they all got together and thought, you know, how can we create a dialogue and how can we foster this this kind of uh, community of contemplative science and contemplative research. And so that was the birth of, of, of contemplative research as we know it. So mm. I started going to this, I think the first event I went to was a Mind and Life Europe event in Berlin. And it was this really intimate place where there was, you know, Mathieu Ricard was there. Um, and I, I believe Sharon Salzberg may have been there as well. So like, you know, some of the real heavyweights, um, Dalai Lama wasn't there, of course, um, but, you know, some of the real heavyweights and big thinkers in the world of, you know, in, in the fields of, you know, contemplation as a practice and contemplation as a, as a scientific study. And it was this real sense of community and purpose and, you know, striving to kind of bring these things to life that was, that was really, you know, spellbinding. Um, so I continued going to these events and then it kind of, over time, it slowly kind of dawned on me that, yeah, actually I can make this a career. So, so that I started kind of learning a bit more uh, and that kind of led me to the PhD eventually where, in Australia at the time, there was no, um, there weren't really a lot of meditation researchers when I started the PhD. Um, and so, 
I ended up kind of using applying different techniques. So I, I looked at I looked at pain, which I had a background in. So I was looking at pain and using meditation techniques to kind of start understanding um, how you know how mindfulness meditation works for pain because it's a it's quite a, a well-known treatment for chronic pain and to a lesser extent for acute pain. Um, but yeah, I kind of came into it through a different way. Um, so it wasn't necessarily it was a, a you know I was. I was doing meditation research, but I was doing it more under the guise of, of pain research. And then kind of by the time I was kind of getting into my PhD, I realized that uh, Nicholas Van Dam, who's a well-respected American um, meditation researcher, contemplative researcher, um, had moved to Australia. And so I got in contact with him. Um, and then, yeah, he, he was lucky enough to receive some funds to start the contemplative study center. And then, then that kind of, that moved on from there. So yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's been a very interesting and fortuitous journey to come to. Mm. You know, I mean, meditation research. It was always you fly to America or fly to Europe, and there are these amazing people doing wonderful things. And you know, there was nothing happening in Australia. And now we have in Australia the largest contemplative research center. Well, the only or one of the only two contemplative research centers in the Southern Hemisphere. Both are in Melbourne. Um, and they're the only ones in the Southern Hemisphere, and they're actually probably the best funded and best resourced and best positioned to do work, the work that we're doing in the world at the moment. So we're just incredibly lucky to have that in our backyard. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I pinch myself sometimes to think how things have progressed since those times. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things in all of that that I'd love to sort of check in with you about and, and kind of go back to. The, the first bit is you as an adolescent, uh, that always, you know, sort of, um, I, I find that a curious thing. Like, and and also, you know, how might we engage with adolescents in and around uh, meditation or mindfulness and so on? What what was it for you? Do you think? Like, what? How how did you stumble across it? Or or and and really, it sounds like feel quite inspired by it all and get very engaged. Yeah, it's funny. No one's ever asked me that question before. I I think. Um... You know, as a as an adolescent, I was quite curious about the world. I kind of had been exposed, like lucky enough to be exposed to some people that thought differently or kind of had more of a spiritual. Like I, I grew up in a very like, um, well, I grew up in a I would say very religious, but in a you know in a Christian upbringing. But then started questioning that as I grew older and, and didn't really identify with it too much. And then I guess I was just you know as I started reading and and observing around me. Yeah, I started seeing that, you know, the, the the reality that I saw wasn't the reality that other people saw. And I started just questioning that and, and, and looking beyond that. And yeah, meditation just seemed like a very natural kind of thing to do. It's almost kind of an, this kind of innate thing that, that humans have done, that almost that our, our culture has kind of um, divorced us from in a way. So you know, when you kind of step back from things, it seems natural to kind of sit still and sit with oneself and to, to process things. Like, it seems like we have that innate capacity within ourselves. Mm. Um, and yeah, I had lots of lots of access to good resources around me. So I, you know, learned some different meditation practices. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was incredibly, you know, it's, it, it's funny, it was incredibly transformative, you know, just to, to be able to kind of step back from, from who I thought I was and to, to see things in different ways and to see the the kind of the, the the wisdom, you know, the embodied wisdom that that I had within myself or that I have, you know, had around me and, and just the sense of connection, like everything became more vivid and the, the depth of connection to the environment and and to you know to everything around and to other people. It was just, yeah, it was it was quite an eye opener. And I think this that just really fed forward. Um mm. So yeah, the more the more benefit I, I saw from that, the more I wanted to go deeper into it. Mm. But yeah, I guess I mean, what do they say when the when the student is ready, the master appears? You know, I think mm. with adolescents, it's very hard. Like some of them just aren't interested. You know, I've got two small children. And I kind of I try and expose them to meditation where I can because they're not been important to me. Like they, they couldn't care less at this stage. Mm. But then you know they're very present and mindful in their own ways anyway so so why do they need it mm. um and i think there was the the very famous the myriad study in in the uk where they they took mindfulness into schools to try and improve mental health and school outcomes and and they found that it worked very well for the people 
who liked it and it worked terribly for the people who didn't. So I think there's that distinction where, you know, when people if people are interested, yeah, the, the resources are available, but when they're not, you no, know, maybe something else, maybe sports better or or something else. Yeah, yeah, that's it was a sort of there was a curiosity, I guess, in you. You you sort of were a little bit searching and it 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 the the discovery of of meditation just kind of resonated, I guess. It 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 really made sense to you and and created self-discovery and you started to really understand yourself more or differently and then um then the transformation you know kind of came out of that i remember yeah, when right. i was I remember when i was in grade 11 it it was man's search for meaning i suppose and then i got into yeah. you know more of the um existential sort of theory and the and even the humanistic stuff and so that was where my little 15 or so year old mind went as well but for you yeah that, that is an interesting point that it 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 does depend on the person and and what kind of their interests are, what grabs them. It might be sport or it might be other things, but um, and then that really persisted because it sounds like the mind and and life institute stuff that was kind of parallel to your other educational academic sorts of pursuits. It, it was happening in in parallel. It was very interesting to you. You put a lot of I guess time and effort and money into into sort of attending those sorts of things but it was it was at that stage still still kind of separate to the more academic journey yeah that's right yeah um yeah it was very parallel for a long time but I guess there was the the neuroscience you know there was as we were saying the neuroscience angle attracts a lot of people so I was studying neuroscience and you know doing my core work there and doing my assignments you know in, in my spare time I was reading about the you know, neuroscience and the brain and, and just kind of seeing some of these things that were being done elsewhere. So, so yeah, it, I guess something that kind of, it reinforced my learning, but in a very, in a very kind of compartmentalized kind of way, I guess. Yeah. I went to a summer research institute once with Mind and Life. I was lucky enough to to go and, and yes, it is very inspiring to get together with like-minded people, but also people coming from all sorts of different perspectives and angles to to understand the contemplation and what it what it is or means or how to to sort of you know further all of that it's an incredible community and you know in in academia often a lot of fields are very competitive and 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 quite aggressive like in some ways you know academics aren't very nice to each other and they they there's a lot of you know argy bargy and, and kind of ego and competition mm. and you don't see you just don't see that in contemplative research i mean it, it may exist at a very subtle level, but but you go in and there's just this real sense of collegiality and you know support and and you know real genuine authenticity amongst people, mm. which is really refreshing to see as well. So it's nice to be in that supportive community with people mm. that are all kind of striving to to kind of lift humanity up and and make the world a better place, mm. and alleviate suffering in, in individuals and societies. And, yeah, it's 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 wonderful. I've never seen anything like it. I also went to I didn't go to a summer research institute, but Minds and Life offered one international research institute, oh. which was in uh, Kyoto, in Japan, and it was situated in this Miyoshinji. It was a this ancient ancient Zen monastery complex, and we had the faculty were Zen priests i guess or, or or zen leaders and so we're getting you know guided through these you know zen walking walking through zen gardens and sitting and just incredible experience and yeah. then we got hit by a typhoon which is also an experience mm -hmm. um, oh you did get but, hit by a typhoon yeah we did we had to um, hide out in a you know this kind of concrete hotel nearby so yeah it was this um very kind of profound kind of inner experience amongst this kind of turmoil it's like a metaphor for life in some ways kind of yes this, this stillness this calm amid the storm yeah it was very interesting mm. <laughs> that is really interesting and the, <laughs> the, the metaphorical kind of um the symbolism of it all is is profound by the sounds of it the, the summer research institute i did was i can't remember the name of the actual venue but i think it's where they hold it you might know where they hold it sort of oh garrison, most... garrison. yes garrison thank you yes yeah. exactly garrison institute and, and that's up the hudson river i think sort of thing in in new york state 
and and across the across the river is West Point. So every now and then you'd hear these cannons kind of <laughs> <laughs> sort of as you're sitting there quietly noticing your breath. Um, war, so it was, war and peace. War and yeah, peace across the yeah, river. Yeah, across the <laughs> river. So that was there was some interesting kind of contemplation that arose out of some of that as well. But um, yeah, so I, you're, you're now at the the um, uh, contemplative, contemplative studies center. Studies center. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So what what's your what's your work at the moment? What what are you focusing on these days? Well, look, we are. Um, so the contemplative studies center I was mentioning it was founded in 2021 um, by a philanthropic donation from Martin and Loretto Hosking. So Martin Hosking is the founder of Redbubble, um, a, a, a kind of an online business. Um, and has been very, his life has been transformed as well, like many people says by meditation. So he was really moved to to um, to provide a, a gift to to get us going and, and to start understanding these things. And so, you know, re- research funding is is the the limiting factor, the right limiting factor for most researchers. But you know, we we have, you know, we've got lots of resources, and we we feel like there's kids in candy stores. Like we can basically answer an infinite number of questions. Only limited by our own capacity and our needs to sleep sometimes. Mm. So we're doing some really fascinating stuff at the moment. So we're kind of we're, we're looking more or less across three streams. So one of the streams is um, the, the 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 personalization of meditation. So you know meditation has changed and, and morphed over the years. So it started from you know you'd go and become a monk or a nun, and you'd you'd devote you know multiple lifetimes to you know refining your practice and, and, and achieving enlightenment. Um, of course, you know, not many people these days have multiple lifetimes to devote to a practice like that. So, of course, it's been condensed down to, to eight weeks. So, you know, you, it started with the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And even eight weeks, eight weeks is too hard these days. You know, we're, we're living in the Twitter age, so or TikTok or whatever we're up to now. Um, so, you know, the, the programs are getting shorter and shorter. Um, we can't all do face to face, so they're becoming online. And now, you know, you can you can have a, a meditation app on your smartphone. So, and this is all great. Like it's you know, in theory, it's it's fabulous. Like you do you, you know, you do you get the same benefits from you know doing a, a five-minute meditation on an app than you do from spending multiple lifetimes sitting in a in a monastery. Well, that's these are the sorts of things we're trying to understand because you know if you read the literature if you if you, if you go to, to a website of an app or or any other program you know you get these glowing testimonials and reviews and millions of downloads and you'd think well look this is a great product you know it's there's scientific studies but if you look closely at them oh, are they are they good, is it good science is it compelling is it is it replicable there's lots of questions around this and and yeah so so basically like we're we're, we're trying to understand all these factors like a, the 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 enthusiasm which is great and you know I love meditation I'd love to see everyone meditating that wants to do it and I'd love to see everyone getting the benefits but you know you've got to be giving people things that are effective that are tried and tested and that are and, and that are helping them achieve the goals that they want to achieve and you know if you're you know, if you want a five-minute chill out or you want to get sleep easier, yeah, maybe an app's great. But if you're looking for lasting, you know, mental health benefits or or other benefits or other transformations in your life, maybe you need to do a bit more. So, yeah, we're, a, a lot of the work we're doing is really trying to understand some of these nuts and bolts, really fundamental stuff, you know, like what, which practices are the most effective and for what? Do they work for everyone? Do they work for certain people? You know, it's real, real fundamental kind of stuff. Like the more we, the more we look into things, you know, the 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 knowledge that we've gained over the years from 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 meditation research, you know, that the foundations aren't necessarily as good as they need to be. So a lot of it's kind of trying to put foundations or evaluate some of the claims that are being made. So yeah, we're doing things like particularly dose response effects. So you know, what dose of meditation and what context you need to deliver it to get a certain benefit we're looking at things like yeah comparative effectiveness as they were saying so you know this face-to-face work as well as online you know what factors are involved in apps um, and, and how apps work do they work uh, and a lot of it's also we've got a very strong health economics focus as well so we're you know obviously understanding 
okay, so are these programs working for people? Are they delivering the outcomes that people need them to or that, that, that are beneficial for people? And second of all, you know, if we're using these things increasingly in, in health and medical context, are they value for money? Like, are they saving users money? Are they saving the healthcare system money? So some of these things are really fundamental questions and there's very, very little health economic evidence around some of this stuff as well. So, you know, obviously if, um, you know, if a, if, a, if a meditation app works, but the benefits are small, and the costs are high, if the costs end up being lower for a, an eight-week MBCT course, uh, overall, and it delivers more benefit, then we should be putting our money into MBCT courses and not into, into mindfulness apps, if you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. so some of these questions, we really need some evidence behind them. Um, I can take a pause now if you want to respond to that. Otherwise, we've got two other big programs that I could talk about. Well, I... I, I, I am fascinated by this you delivered a, a presentation at the recent uq compassion symposium that i think was offering us a a, a little taster of, of some of the findings there i mean it, it, it is very interesting there is a lot of enthusiasm for it there are millions of downloads uh but i think your point there was what happens next i guess you know after after the download because that's not quite the um that's not the end of the story. And, and is that the best sort of outcome measure, really? You know, that the people, how, how there's the user kind of side. How does, who, who are the users? What are their characteristics? You know, what might we learn from that? There's the app side, which is the kind of like, you know, is the app engaging people? Is it sort of user-friendly? Is it effective? And then there's the sort of health economic side, you know, like what what's the the bang for our buck? I guess is if that's not too too crass a way to say it, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, what, I mean, any sort of little highlights there? We'll come back to those other two areas in a sec, but but yeah, what 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 are the highlights there with the apps and your findings? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so so we did um, along with a colleague at the center, uh, Julia Adams. So she's a master student, um, so she was presenting as well. Um, yeah, so this work was, yeah, understanding. So basically we know that apps are really, really popular. So if you, if you ask most people, like we've done surveys where we ask meditators broadly, you know, how do you practice? And very few of them practice face-to-face -face with the teacher. A lot of people practice unguided as I started out. I think a lot of people have that, that way of going about things. And a lot of people access kind of things like, um, audio or video resources that outside of apps. So, you know, things like YouTube or, or, or other places. Um, so that's all great. Um, but then of course, probably about, I think we found about 25% of meditators use apps. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a lot of people, right? Um, Cause yeah, I mean, like, I'll, I could talk about this more later, but yeah, we're probably in, in Australia, it's like some, some new data that we've got coming out show that probably about one in one in three Australian adults have tried meditation in the past 12 months. Um, in America, it's probably about one in five adults. So, you know, quite a substantial number of people are, are engaging with these practices. We don't know, we, well, we actually know next to nothing about how they're engaging, whether they're doing it once, you know, as a as a one-off or they're engaging more. So this is what we're trying to understand is like how are people engaging with these practices? And particularly with apps, there was this influential study in 2019 by a, a researcher from Israel called um, Amit Bommel, Bommel, who was actually a computer scientist and he was interested in app downloads and understanding kind of apps. And so what he did is he took some, I'm not sure exactly where he got the information from, but it was kind of objective use data about apps and, and first of all, who was downloading them and who was opening them and who was engaging with them. And basically what he found was that about 85%, so lots and lots of downloads. And of course, you know, med meditation apps um, fall, you know, he was looking more broadly at mental health apps. So, but if you look at, you know, he had uh, like a sub-analysis of, of meditation apps and the, the patterns were largely the same for all apps. But basically what he found was that huge numbers of downloads, like millions and millions of downloads. Um, and if you look at the people that download these apps, 85% of them don't even open it. They download the app to their phone and it sits there, never gets open. 
So the first thing that's telling you is, okay, so download our app. It's got the most number of downloads. It means nothing. It means nothing at all because most people don't even open it. They don't even open it. And then they looked at the people that did open it. They looked at those, so that was the remaining 15%. And they found that, oh, I have to look up the numbers again, but it was something somewhere of the order of about 10% of people um, would open it once. So they would stop using it. Yeah, so it was, so it, it turned out that the majority of those people, so about 12% of those people, um, so 85% didn't open it at all. 15% opened it. Of the 15%, 12% of those people disengaged from the app within 30 days. And they found this, this, this curve where basically starting from day one down to day 30, um, the majority, the vast majority of those people dropped off use within seven days. So they might've used it once, maybe twice, then they stopped using it. And then that just decreased over time. Mm. And then you've got the remaining 3% of those people that downloaded an app that engage with it for more than 30 days. And so clearly we're asking, all right, what's going on? Like, why are, you know, what, how do, how can you predict, what, how can you predict who's going to engage? You know, how do, how do you get to those 3% or how do you make that 3%, 4%, 5% or more? Like clearly some people are downloading these things and they have no intention of using them and that's fine. You know, they don't have to, um, but obviously people are, presumably downloading these things because they'll have some sort of benefit. So what can you do if you're an app company? What can you do to make people grab onto these things more and, and get more benefit out of them? So we started kind of unpacking that and understanding that. So we did this survey, in which was an international survey. We looked at um, app meditators. We had to screen a lot of people to do this, but we needed to find people that had used an app for, downloaded and used an app within the last... 180 days, so last six months, um, and had used it one or more times, basically. So we 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 screened really really extensively. We had a lot of people from the US, a lot of people from the UK, some a few people from Australia and New Zealand, and a few people from Canada. So all English speaking countries, places where meditation apps are fairly um, ubiquitous. Uh, we ended up with a sample of just over. 500, I want to say 500 people in, in the survey. And basically we found, we found very, very similar results. So we basically found similar to, to the Bommel study, we found that a lot of people had used it once, twice, three, four times within about a week or two that, that disengaged completely. Um, and then we had, you know, we had the, the you know, the 3% that, that kind of used more consistently. Uh, and we verified this, you know, through um, a range of, you know, we asked people how, how they engage with it a number of different ways. And we also looked at the screenshots. We made them supply screenshots so we could verify their app um, statistics, all sorts of things like this. So, so it was a really comprehensive study. And yeah, then we started, we just we we asked them a lot of questions. You know, we asked them, you know, socio-demographic questions, and we asked them personality, and we asked them, you know, all sorts of questions about factors that might influence engagement. So things like um. Um, expectations of benefit, you know, their perceptions of the app, you know, what app they were using, what they thought of the app. Um, we measured something called um, therapeutic alliance, which as a, as a, a psychologist, you'd, um, you'd probably be aware of, you know, this, this idea that um, psychology works in part because of the, 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 of the treatment itself, but also in part because of the, the therapist and the relationship between the therapist and the, and the patient. Um, and, you know, there's this speculation in the field that um, apps, because they don't have a therapist and because they're kind of more asynchronous, that they may be less effective because there's less of that re relationship. So we're trying to unpack some of these factors as well. And, yeah, it was really, really interesting what we found. Like we've, we found and we measured things like self-compassion, you know, the sorts of things that people were, you know, the what what people did when they were in an app, when they, you know, what time of day, all sorts of stuff, like really comprehensive. Um, one of the first things we found, which was really, really interesting, was we measured people's levels of self-compassion, and we found people that had higher levels of self-compassion were more likely to engage with an app, which is really interesting, right? Like it's, you know, I mean, how could that happen? 
and and we we don't have a good explanation for that. We looked when we've kind of talked to people a little bit more, and there's this other idea that compassion practice, like a lot of meditation practice, you can learn by sitting down, listening to a recording. But there's this kind of this notion in the field that compassion, it's more of a heartfelt thing, like it's it's a transfer of compassion or meta or whatever from a teacher directly to a student. And so that you know, some people would say that it works best when the teacher and the student are there and that there's that flow of compassion from one to the other. And that's and some people would argue that even though that's the only way you can really impart compassion on people is by direct transfer. Um, so does this work as a digital intervention? No one knows, right? And so we ask people as well, like, you know, okay, so you meditate using an app, you know, given 100% of your practice, you know, how much of it is, you know, mindfulness, you know, is it focused attention on the breath? Is it attention on the body? Is it compassion? What, you know, what are you doing in your practice? And we found that overall, oh, let's see, for most people, for, so the average across all meditators, app meditators in our study, probably about three to five percent. Yeah, I, I, okay, so the median, so it's for the majority of people, compassion meditation was less than one percent of their app use. The average, I think, was closer to five. And then the maximum we found, the maximum people that used, that used a lot of meditation or compassion in their practice, the maximum was about 20%. So it's really low, right? Like it's, you sort of, you sort of think uh, compassion has so many benefits for so many people. We know that we're seeing, we've done the studies and we know that compassion is really, really beneficial to people, but it's not being delivered either. It's not being delivered. And there are compassion apps in the app store, but you know, we looked at obviously, you know, 500 people, we asked them what app they're using. Not one of them was using a compassion app. And so they're relying on compassion resources that are in other apps. And there's just a really limited, really limited amount of those in other apps. But then you sort of think, okay, well, if self-compassion, self-compassion can be taught, it can be trained. And we know that self-compassion predicts engagement with apps. And yet the apps don't include any compassion training in them which would actually help support their business model. If they had compassion in the apps, people would use their apps more and the app companies would make more money and they'd be able to help more people, but they don't have them. So it's this really, like some really interesting findings that we're, we're discovering through this research. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, that, that um, uh, it is fascinating. A lot of people download apps, a small number of them open them, and an even smaller number of them number of them use them and 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 persist with them um but there's this little kind of sort of uh, fascinating finding that 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 somehow self compassion is in the mix maybe that 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 actually um opening and using an app might in a funny sort of way be self compassionate action <laughs> that people are doing it from a self compassionate motivation perhaps but also um, the app itself might be able to further enhance that or further support cultivation of, of self-compassion, but not many apps do it. Not many apps focus on it. <laughs> and, 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 and it. And it's sort of like a very interesting opportunity to feed back to app developers, say, or that sort of thing, because uh, it might actually help to enhance the users or the usage i guess of of these apps as well to have that more compassionate self-compassionate aspect to um to, to sort of the the practices on on the app so and yeah, yeah. And, and and i mean don't forget also that you know there's that you know there's, there's been a lot of focus on kind of this you know like mindfulness and these app companies that are just trying to make more money and, and you know there may be an element of that but you know and obviously the more people engage with their app the more you know, the more successful their app is and the more money they make, which is, you know, and if they're making money by helping people, you know, we know there's those response effects for these things, right? So the more you use, the more you meditate, the more you use any sort of product, the more benefit you get. So, you know, if you can use these things more and become more self-compassionate, um, you know, if you can practice these things, you're getting the benefits, you know, 
yeah, sure, the app company is making money, but they're also supplying product. That if it's if it's working, that's great. Mm. Um, but yeah, like the question is like no one seems to be questioning what's the most effective way of doing this. And you know, if I go back to like I many years ago, I, I started practicing vipassana and meditation. And you know, there's always this kind of focus on all right, well, we're gonna we're gonna go deep and we're gonna kind of understand we're we're gonna practice mindfulness and then we'll do some meta, you know, we'll do some compassion practice to kind of, you know, you know, we're we're I, I think um Goenka talks about, you know, um squeezing a boil and getting the pus coming out and then the meta's the balm that, that soothes everything and, and heals everything. Um, which is a really, really graphic and but you know, somehow very effective metaphor. Yes. Um but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think I remember going to, you know, doing many, many meditations in Vipassana where there wasn't, you know, a little bit of of, of compassion at the end. Mm. And, you know, there's no reason that app companies couldn't do a five-minute meditation and do a, you know, 30 seconds or a minute of, of compassion at the end. There's no reason. And mm. I think we'd probably find that it's quite effective in engaging people. Yes, it could easily. And almost kind of needs to be sort of woven into uh the practice really as it is really a part of it and that that's the one of the challenges with some of the more recent sort of versions of mindfulness or or whatever is that it it kind of forgets the the care and discernment aspect of you know what mindfulness has always been you know it's always been um you know kind of wisdom and compassion as as really part of it and i think things will come full circle like we've we've been really you know we live in a really reductionist system where it's like oh what's the active ingredient you know how can we just give people the active ingredient and nothing else but i think you know we started with this really rich context where where meditation was part of a, a spiritual practice and you devote your lifetime to it or multiple lifetimes to it and you know meditation was just one part of that and there was ethics and you know community and all sorts of other supportive things around it and then it kind of got reduced again to a you know this to a you know, a, a psychological, you know, a psychosocial group therapy kind of situation. And then it kind of gets further and further and further and until it's just like a mental training. Like, you know, it's just, if I just do three minutes of mental training, is that going to make me a more ethical person? Is it going to make me more connected to people around me? No, well, I mean, you're sitting on your phone. Of course it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people will start eventually realizing that those aspects are missing and they'll start, you know, they'll, they'll start kind of, these things will become palatable again, I think. I hope, at least I hope they will. Mm. Well, that sounds like you're leading the charge. So that, that's, <laughs> that's a good part of that. And I must admit, I was thinking that even if a million people download an app and only 3% use it for 30 days or more, that's still, I, if my maths are right, you know, 30-odd thousand people um, engaging with it. So it, it sort of trickles down to still rather large numbers, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. And look, I guess, I mean, we, you know, we haven't we haven't hit peak mindfulness yet. Like, I think there's been a lot of hype, a lot of enthusiasm, and it's, it's grown very steadily. Um, so we did a study in uh, another study where we looked at American uh, health data. So I, I talked about this at the Compassion Symposium as well. So this, um, the National Health Interview Survey is like, it's like the, um, it's like the census of, of health in, in America. So every year they they talk to they they interview about eighty thousand people and they get a representative sample of all all adults in the U.S. population. And they understand their their health situation, their healthcare access, and all sorts of things. And they talk about their you know every five years they talk about you know so they use meditation or yoga or other things. Um, and so we did an analysis on this recently, and we found you know at the moment so one in five. The, the stats are about one in five American adults have used meditation in the past 12 months. And that equates to, I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of about 50 million American adults. It's a huge number of people and it's growing year on year. So it's growing half a percent per year, which doesn't sound half a percent at a population level is actually quite a lot. So it's about 10,000 new users a year. So, mm-hmm. so some really, really strong growth in, in meditation. And across, mm. you know, across um, across gender, across socioeconomic strata, across race, across age, like just very consistent growth across most strata of society. So, mm. um, so really useful. But mm. I think I, I was I was also 
we, we did another study. So we wanted to understand kind of meditation use in America because we know a lot about America. So we did. So I, I told you we've, there's this, we know that one in five American adults practice meditation and have practiced meditation in the past year. So what if we looked at a representative sample of those meditators based on, okay, so that one person in five, what do they look like? And if we get a big sample of those people, you know, what can we understand? And so we looked at this as well. And we found, we looked at three different types of meditation. So for a couple of years, they, the NHIS survey was looking at um, mindfulness meditation, mantra meditation, and spiritual meditation. And so we looked at meditators from those, and they're very arbitrary categories. You, could, you know, what what is spiritual meditation? It's, it's, you know. But anyway, we looked at them for what it's worth. And we looked at beginner meditators, intermediate meditators, and advanced meditators. And we're trying to understand, okay, so what do these people look like? What do they do when they practice? All these sorts of things. So we looked at, okay, so what is a compassion meditator? What do they look like? Um, and we found, we found that compassion practices were, compassion meditators were mostly kind of considered themselves more spiritual. So they kind of practiced, they identified as being spiritual meditators or they identified meditating in a spiritual context. Um, Religion-wise, religion they were either Christian, spiritual, spiritual but not religious, or um, or Buddhist were the three three biggest categories for compassion meditators. But the other thing we found was again, and this ties into the findings before, their their use of the way they get their meditation, they actually use apps less. Than other meditators, so so people who practice compassion are less likely to go to an app to get it. They're more likely to get it from somewhere else at the moment. Um, and the other thing we found was that amongst beginner meditators, beginner meditators on average were a lot less likely to use compassion practices compared to intermediate or advanced. So whatever it is, I don't know whether it's what the offerings are or the way it's taught. But when you're starting out as a meditator, you're not getting compassion practices. Those practices, well, some people are, but a lot less than other practices that are available. And then once you become more experienced, maybe people value it more or it's part of a lineage or, or something, but they're starting to practice compassion a lot more as they kind of advance in their, their, in their meditative life. So, yeah, some really interesting findings there as well. And we're trying to all understand that as well. So, mm. I'll... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there so we can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, those who are more perhaps spiritual, those who are perhaps more experienced, those who are perhaps more face to face. You know, that's where compassion meditation really starts to become a, a more significant part of the practice. I, I I noticed you mentioned earlier. Well, you mentioned just then one in five Americans, but you said earlier one in three Australians. Is is there something that you've worked out with that because that seems like a bit of a difference i guess in a way but maybe i'm overstating it yeah so um we've started off looking at america because there's more there's comparatively more information available and we like obviously we're in australia you know australia and new zealand particularly our backyards and we you know we want to know what's going on like if people we would you know for better or worse we often you know kind of model ourselves after america um, so is it one in five? Like, are we doing? Are we engaging with these things the same amount, or is it, or is it different? And so, so we we um, just uh, just a couple of months ago, we we started the first in like the first that's ever happened nationally representative survey of Australia and New Zealand. So we take a national like as we use the census, and we 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 target people based on you know representative sample of of the Australian census and the New Zealand census. And we ask those people a bunch of questions about their health, who they are, um, and you know their use of contemplative practices. And so we're asking about meditation, but we're asking about contemplative practice more broadly. So you know, have you ever done anything? You know, in the last twelve months, have you done anything in a contemplative way? So with with deep thoughts like contemplative gardening or yoga or tai chi or you name it, like just trying to understand whether people are. are have some sort of contemplative practice in their life at all. Um, 
data collection is ongoing, but I do have a little bit of stuff I can talk about now. So what we found was actually quite, quite staggering. So we found that almost three out of four Australians, I don't have the New Zealand data, sorry, I can only talk about Australia, but um, about three out of four Australians have engaged with some form of contemplative practice in the last 12 months, which is like a really, really, really high level. And, you know, for some people, uh, that's different for everyone. Like for some people, that's taking a bath and doing that as a contemplative work. For some people, it's gardening. For some people, it's going for a run and, you know, just really being immersed in that run. So, but it's a it's a really high number. It's what, I think it speaks volumes about, you know, um, you know, what people are looking for in their lives. You know, we're finding a lot less people in the same survey, we're finding a lot less people are engaged in organized religion, but they're really wanting something that kind of connects them to themselves and grounds them and connects them to, to the world around them. And so this is where, you know, contemplative practice is coming in. And so that's one, three out of four Australian adults engaging in some form of contemplative practice in the 12 months. And at a population level again, one in three people are meditating. So about 33% on those. So this is trying meditation in the past 12 months. So again, we don't know, we have we have collected data on this, but you know, for some people that will be, I downloaded the Headspace app and I used it once. And for some people that will be, I do an hour's meditation a day and I go to retreats. So we don't know yet um, where that, once the data um, collection finishes in a couple of weeks time, we'll be in a, in a chance, we'll be able to have an opportunity to unpack this a bit more, but like, so one in five Americans compared to one in three Australians are using meditation. So go Australia. Yeah. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, uh, there's so much more I, we could dive into with that bit, but I know that you had two other areas that, that you sort of wanted to mention in terms of the, the work there that you're doing at the centre. Can you give us a, a sense of those bits as well? Well, um, Stan, you'll be pleased to know that I've already Trojan horsed them in a little bit for um, okay for the, for, for the sake of time. So yeah, so one, well, actually one of them is, the third one is just kind of mapping the landscape. So we've done a series of survey, broad survey studies where we like, we just don't know, like there's so much, you know, there's been lots of, mm. um, like even for compassion research, there's been about 120 randomized control trials. So you know, this is where you, you do a study where you have a compassion intervention, you have a control intervention of some sort, you randomly allocate people to it, um, and then you see whether one condition is better than the other. So it's compassion superior to no treatment or some other treatment. Um, and so we've had about 120 of those over the past kind of 20 odd years, which is good going, right? And, you know, you can learn a lot from RCTs that the gold standard in medical practice. So, you know, in terms of, of the hierarchy of evidence, you know, randomized control trials are, are the way to go. They're great. But what we don't know is, you know, this this high level stuff. So you get this kind of, they call, you know, they call it an RCT, a randomized control trial, a, a, a tactical strike. So if you want to know, okay, is compassion effective at increasing well-being in medical students? So you get medical students, you randomize them, you give them compassion, you measure well-being, and then you say, yes, it does or no, it doesn't. So you test a very specific question and you get a very specific answer. Um, but we don't know like more broadly. And so, and, and one of the criticisms of randomized control trials is, okay, so is it generalizable? So if I gave this compassion to engineering students who are drunk all the time, would it work the same? <laughs> or if, you know, if I gave it to, you know, octogenarians or someone else or people in a hospital, would it work the same? And you can't, like, you can't generalize these things because you don't have what's called a sampling frame. Um, a sampling frame is when you kind of look out at the whole population. I mean, I, in the ideal world, if resources were unlimited, you'd recruit everyone in Australia and everyone does the intervention and then you get robust data because you know it's generalizable because everyone's done it. But of course, that's not feasible, right? Um, imagine the scheduling would be horrendous. So... So what you do is uh, instead you get a sampling frame. So you say, okay, so in Australia, we know that one in three adults meditate. We know that them, you know, half of them are male, half of them are female. We know that 
you know, a third of them are 25 to 34 years old, the other half, are, you know, and so you can, you can work out, okay, so if I had a sample of, of 100 people in my study, how many 45 to 64 year olds do I need? How many males do I need? How many females do I need? You know, what are the other factors that I need to consider? You know, how many, how many kind of European origin people do I need? How many African origin people do I need? Like all these questions, how many indigenous people do I need? So, you know, until you know who's using these practices and if, unless you know what you're dealing with, it's really hard to kind of generalize these findings. So, so yeah, we've done that obviously with the, um, with this population level data, which is what that really excels at. So we've looked at the American data, the NHIS survey, and we've also done some follow-up studies with um, with meditators, like a representative sample of meditators, and also with app users. Um, and now, of course, we're bringing that to Australia. So I've, I've talked about most of that now. The mm. other thing that I didn't mention about the Australian study is that so one in three Australians have meditated in the past 12 months. Um, one in six meditators in Australia practice compassion. Ah. So, so that's a very you know, comparatively small amount. So I think there's, um, there's a good thing we're doing podcasts and I think good thing we're spreading the word a little bit more because I think, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. maybe we need it um, to increase that, that... the outreach a little bit. So and this is, and yeah, so this is the real the real benefit of, of, of once you know that, once you have this data in front of you, you can say, wow, we need to do more work here or, you know, maybe let's, what happens if we introduce more of this here? What would the change be at a population level? And you can mm. start to see these things change over time. Or you can say to the government, you know, we really need to be teaching compassion in schools or we need to be doing this or that or the other. And you can actually mm. start making some recommendations. And then seeing over time, you know, three years time, three years time, we've put a big public health dimension into place or, um, um, you know, is it cutting through? So are we getting the results we we're expecting? So, mm. so this is the real benefit of this this work that we're doing. Yeah, that seems to be a um, recurring finding, really, about the uh, usage of compassion meditation as opposed to well, as a specific, I guess, form of meditation as opposed to other things that people might be doing, such as mindfulness and and so on. So that that is a really interesting opportunity, I guess. You know, that's what you're saying, I think, is that having this data and this understanding at more population levels gives us some clues about where we can put our efforts, maybe, or, or what, what the opportunities might be. Um, just for the sake of perhaps the listener, like, how would you sort of name each of these three areas that you were wanting to or you, that you've been talking about? Like, are there kind of just, just so that we can kind of orient to the things that your centre's doing? Yeah, so the first one I was talking about was um, kind of understanding, you know, the nuts and bolts about how meditation works and the health economics. That's, um, yep. we call it personalised meditation. So kind of understanding okay. how how meditation kind of works for the person, for the individual, and, and whether there are differences in what works for whom. Mm -hmm. So it's personalised meditation. Um, the second one I was talking about is kind of what we would call kind of mapping the mapping the landscape or mapping the territory so just understanding at a big bird's eye view you know what's going on um you know what's happening you know the, the you know it's the fundamentals of who what when where why um of of, of meditation in australia new zealand and, and elsewhere you know mm. some really fundamental stuff that's, but amazingly hasn't been looked at ever mm. um and then the third one which i haven't really touched on too much is um uh, it's called, uh, we call it kind of progression, um, progression experiences. So we're understanding, okay, in a traditional context, what or stages of insight or stages of progress. So, you know, if you start meditating very seriously, how do you know you're making progress? You know, is it just that your, you know, your stress level is going down or you're sleeping better? Or is it, you know, like, how do you know that once you've gone through kind of got Got through one stage of, of meditation you know what sort of things um are you seeing in your life or, or in your practice or in your reality that that indicate that you might have hit a certain milestone you might be that one step closer to enlightenment or whatever you're going towards so this mm. is kind of a, a, a quite a big effort that's being led by our deputy director julieta galante who um, some compassion researchers will know for her work with um uh, kindness-based meditation um mm. so some interesting work there Mm -hmm. um, and so she's leading this um, talking to a lot of um, practice experts, so kind of um, traditional 
practice communities and understanding, okay, so what are the stages that a person goes through and how do you know, you know, if this person turns up one day and says, you know, this is happening in my life or, or I was in my practice and I had this vision or this happened or something else, um, how do you know where they are on the, on the path? Mm. So, mm. so that's a, that, that's um, some work that's coming up um, as well. Mm. So, so yeah, there are three main things. Great. Um, all, Pers- all this stuff's got a, all, all this stuff's on our website. Um, yes. We've got a, yeah. So we can, but we can talk more about that later as well. I think we're starting to run out of time, though, aren't we? Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> that's that's great. Me too, me too. I mean, I, I think um, personalized practice, uh, mapping the territory, and progression—you know, kind of basically—are are the the three main areas. I'll, I'll definitely include your uh, website on on in the the sort of the notes um, below. Uh, I think it might be good to put a link to Mind and Life as well. Perhaps that that probably uh, would be useful. I might also. If you wouldn't mind, um, maybe sending me some some links to just a couple of those papers that you've perhaps mentioned as well, just so people can, uh, you know, look at some of your work. But but you mentioned a couple of earlier studies as as well, so that would be great. Given all of this, and given your research in in these various areas, but maybe also your practice, personal practice as well. I mean, what what would you recommend you know for people how to get started how to keep going i mean do you have any little tips there for for people on on their meditation slash compassion journey well um look i want to resist the urge to kind of give recommendations too much um okay uh, for, the, for, the, for those for those who are in the audience who are parents um you'll be familiar with a lot of the parenting books that talk about um i'm a parenting expert because i had a child and this worked for me so here's my 12-step plan about how to um, get your baby to sleep. Um, yes. And they're infuriating because it worked for your child, but your child's not like my child. So, um, yes. look, I, I think in, in many ways uh, it's a very personalised journey. Um, I think we're, we're, we're at the sense that we are working towards kind of having some recommendations. I think, I mean, the probably the best way is just, you know, follow your curiosity, but I think also, you know, do something that's grounded in a tradition. You know, there's lots of, home-baked things that are available there's a lot of things that have lots of claims and lots of downloads um, but not necessarily a lot of evidence so Mm. i I think it's really important you know the you know if you're if you're interested in in kind of traditional meditation forms you know there are some that have been around for millennia they've been used by a lot of people they've benefited a lot of people you know engaging with something that's tried and tested um, maybe doesn't have as many scientific papers but been around for a long time stood the test of time I think that's always a good place to start. So, I mean, MBSR has, you know, it hasn't been around for millennia, but it's certainly been around for for decades now. Uh, there's a good evidence base behind it. And it's a really good, safe way. You know, the, the people that are often kind of, um, the instructors are often kind of trained both in, in contemplative practices, but also in, in psychological, you know, mental health. So they mm. can kind of guide you through. And if you, if you kind of have any stumbling blocks, they can, they can, they, you know, it's, it's safe. It's it's very safe, and there's support available if, if things go mm. wrong. Mm. Um, so I would say, yeah, probably starting there. I mean, mm. I, I I don't necessarily have anything against apps um, as a as a blanket rule. Mm. I think you know, if you've only got five minutes to throw at it, and you can get a five minute meditation in between, you know, on the bus or or before bed or whenever, then that's definitely better than nothing. But mm. I certainly I wouldn't expect that an app would be um, your final destination as a as a meditator. Mm. So okay. I mean, I think yeah, there's this, there's lots of there's lots of resources available. But the other thing is, you know, reach out to the to the contemplative study center. You know, we have resources available. Um, we've got a very active um, a very active public engagement series. Um, so we tend to get in uh, meditation teachers from different lineages. So you can come and basically do a sampler. You can come come and you know, do a couple of weeks practice of, of Zen or movement-based meditation or compassion meditation or whatever it is and see if you like it. And if you like it, then you can connect with the teacher mm. from there. Mm. And we can give recommendations for that as well. The mm. um, the centre, everything's open, everything's publicly available. You can sign up for these things live when they happen. Um, all our all our listings are up on the, on the website. And we also have a, a very extensive now back catalogue of practices. So it's a really rich resource, stuff mm. that's, been around for a long time you can try it see if you like it if you like it then go deeper 
Does the centre have an app, Jonathan? <laughs> we don't. We're resisting the app so far, but um, we are. You know, we're, we're we're very interested. We are interested in apps. It's you know, we recognise that a lot of people are using them. It's a way um, in. So yeah. yeah. So so yeah, we've got to we've got to be playing in that space as well. Mm. Well, I, I yes, it, it's it's a personal thing. It's a personal journey, I guess. But I, I suppose I did hear three kind of tips in what you were saying that this sort of follow your curiosity follow a tradition and follow um sort of some of the practice-based evidence and some of the evidence-based practice i guess and and you know those it, that that all of that will sort of perhaps help you to to discover what what works for you well i really appreciate all of that i love your enthusiasm i i agree we could keep talking but i suppose you know we better bring it to a close so thank you very much for being willing to come on and have a a, a chat about meditation thanks jonathan my, my pleasure Stan. it's been wonderful to chat to you about it good thank you